to the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am your host, Meg Durham, wellbeing speaker, educator, and coach. I have taught and worked in schools across metropolitan and regional Australia, and I am dedicated to supporting big-hearted educators to prioritise their wellbeing and take courageous action despite the everyday pressures of school life. Because I want educators to know, you don't have to sacrifice your health, relationships and happiness to be a great teacher. Together, we are going to learn the lessons to help us teach well and be well. Let the learning begin. Hello and welcome to episode 92 of the podcast. I am your host, Meg Durham, and I am thrilled that you have made the time to listen to this thought-provoking and empowering conversation. Before we jump into today's conversation about dealing with difficult people, I wanted to let you know about a special online event that today's guest, Dr. Rebecca Ray, and I have been working on. Four Myths Keeping Educators Stuck, a transformative online masterclass designed for educators that are looking to reignite their fire within and to take their well-being to the next level. This special online event is Thursday, the 17th of August, and if you can't join us live, don't panic. You'll have access to the recording to watch in your own time. This is going to be a powerful event, and I look forward to seeing you there. You can find all the information in the show notes or visit www.rebeccaray.com.au forward slash for miss. Now on with today's show. Do you work with any difficult people? You know, the ones that take up a lot of headspace and you have to brace yourself before an interaction because you never know what they're going to do or say. You're not alone. Working with difficult people is a part of life. It doesn't matter where we go, we always come across a few difficult people. In today's conversation with the wise and warm Dr. Rebecca Ray, we're going to be discussing her latest book. Difficult People, Dealing with the Behaviour of Difficult People. Rebecca is a clinical psychologist and author that shares practical ways to help individuals live a life that's fulfilling, unapologetic and free. In this episode, we discuss why difficult people have such a big impact on our lives, the difference between a difficult and dangerous person how to better navigate the difficult people in our lives, and so much more. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Rebecca Ray. Meg, welcome back to the School of Wellbeing podcast. Thanks for having me, Meg. It's so great to be back. I think perhaps this is my third School of Wellbeing episode. It is the first guest to have third episodes because you keep bringing out incredible books. And so today we're talking about difficult people, dealing with the bad behaviour of difficult people. What inspired you to write this one? My readers, actually. So I wrote Setting Boundaries, as you know. I think that's when we met for the first time. We were talking about Setting Boundaries that came out in 2021 and I had such a beautiful reception to Setting Boundaries. That was my first bestseller, which was super exciting. And I kept on getting messages from readers who would say things like, I feel really confident in my boundaries now. I just love this book so much, but my boundaries just aren't working with this one person. What do I do with this one person? And my publisher came to me and said, can you write a book on narcissists? And I said, 
No, it's generally how I roll with my publisher. She comes up with an idea and I say no, and then I come up with an idea and she says no. But based on the feedback that we got from readers, there was definitely this gap that needed to be addressed with what about these people that actually don't really care about your boundaries? What do we do then? But I just didn't want to write a book that was on personality disorders. And because the term narcissism is often misused on social media, I didn't want to focus solely on that because difficult people actually fit into an entire spectrum of behaviours that of which narcissism is just one part sometimes. So then we had a discussion around how to how to best address this gap for readers and came up with the idea of difficult people. And then the struggle with that was it was actually just really complex to write because I'm then talking about this subset of people that very often very subtle in their behaviors. And sometimes it's even difficult to explain how those people make you feel because they're not dangerous people. So they're a different subset. They're, they're up the continuum a bit further. So I had to find a way to address difficult people without talking about dangerous people and also talking about boundaries enough that people who had never read setting boundaries knew what to do with their boundaries at a basic level without repeating setting boundaries. And so I was kind of in this place where I was like, oh my goodness, this book is breaking my brain because I wanted to make sure it was as valuable as possible, which meant that there needed to be depth. So this is probably the most in-depth book that I've written. And then I was also very committed to not writing a book that was dry. So one of my frustrations with many of the existing books out there that address topics like these is that they can almost end up in textbook land. And I just can't, I wouldn't read it. So if I won't read it, then I'm not going to, I'm not going to expect you to read it. So I need to write something that actually has enough relatability in it that as you're reading it you feel seen heard and understood and that's what you've done as I've gone through the book I've realized just how big this topic is and how it can manifest in so many subtle ways and until you see it you don't even realize that that's happening in our relationships and it's so true that there are people in our lives that when it comes to boundaries we can establish them we can make it happen. Once we get through our discomfort, once we have the conversations, it kind of works. It's fine. And there's that view that it just doesn't seem to work. And that's why this book is so important because it's that next level. And when I think about schools, there is always half a dozen difficult people. I think about a principal that I worked with. We'd often reflect on some really difficult people or difficult parents. And then you'd have this moment where you think, gosh, I can't wait till the end of this year because that family's going to move on. And then she would say, Meg, there's going to be another one coming. It's just a part of school life that there are some difficult people. So what makes people difficult? I look at it like a two-pronged approach, I guess, and that's that difficult people tend to do one or both of these two things. One is they violate your psychological safety. And the second is that they tend to project their dysregulation onto you. Now, because I just totally sounded like a clinical psychologist and those words are not relatable at all, let me break that down <laughs> to, so that our listeners don't go, oh my goodness, I'm just going to switch off right now, which would be understandable. 
Psychological safety was first defined by Amy Edmondson. She's a professor of leadership, I think, at Harvard, and um, she looked at psychological safety in a workplace setting. So a workplace is psychologically safe if you can speak up with ideas, if you can innovate, if you can make mistakes without fear of being shamed, humiliated or punished. And I have taken that term and applied it to a relational setting where relationships are psychologically safe if you can be authentic, if you can mistakes, if you can show up vulnerably, if you can put yourself out there and take interpersonal risks like being loving someone, you know, and not be shamed, humiliated or punished for doing so. So people who are difficult tend to violate our psychological safety in our, in our relationships or interactions with them in some way. Secondly, they tend to project their dysregulation onto us. Now, self-regulation is a term that means that we as adults and kids do it too, are constantly tempering our experience to the present moment. So right now, you and I, as we have this conversation, we are tempering our feelings, our thoughts, our physical sensations, our responses to the broader environments around us and to each other. We're not consciously aware of it most of the time, but what we're doing is regulating our experience. Now, if something unusual happened or if one of us said something that was controversial or nasty or mean, then the intensity of our interaction might be raised and therefore we have to regulate around that in a more conscious way. Now, what tends to happen for people who are difficult is that rather than taking responsibility for that regulation process, they tend to become dysregulated, which means that their emotions tend to spill out onto other people, the people in the interaction with them, and they're very quick to blame that person for their dysregulation. So my anger is not my fault. It's your fault for triggering me. If you didn't behave that way, then I wouldn't be yelling at you right now, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So generally we can look at difficult people. I mean, difficult people do a whole book's worth of behaviors, as you've seen in difficult people. But generally, when we're looking at defining them, the way I look at it is that you don't feel safe with them emotionally and you can't really trust them to manage their own experience without projecting that onto you. That is such a helpful understanding and it gives us such a clear vision of what it's like with difficult people. So as we're talking about difficult people, is it a state, a trait or a disorder? It's not a state. That's the first thing I'm going to say. The reason I want to lean on that is because I think it's really important for us to have a conversation about the fact that we all have bad days and we all have a, have the propensity or the capacity to behave poorly. I'm a, I'm a psychologist, you know, I've been a psychologist for 20 years. I definitely have the capacity to behave poorly. Just ask me when I'm tired or when I'm hungry or when I'm both of those things and you probably don't want to be around. Now, I have learned to self-regulate, obviously, even when life is hard. But what happens is that when we're in that kind of state, it's temporary. So, you know, we can pull ourselves together, we go have a sleep, we wake up the next day, life is different, we feel a bit better, we repair our situation or our interaction with the person that we behaved poorly with and we move on with our lives. Difficult people tend to lean towards having 
these behaviours and ways of being as more traits. And then there's obviously traits that are so maladaptive that they then become diagnostic. So we would be looking at, say, personality disorders around that. Now, the book doesn't cover personality disorders, so I'm not going to cover them here. The book definitely touches on them. But again, if we're talking about someone who has such a high level of psychiatric disturbances to be diagnostic, then that's another conversation, you know. <laughs> we need to manage that a bit differently. So we're, when we're just talking about your everyday, you know, Joe Bloggs who's a difficult person, we're looking at someone who doesn't just temporarily behave poorly. We're looking at someone who over time predictably behave, sorry, predictably behaves in such a way that it makes you feel emotionally unsafe, uncomfortable, you kind of dread your interactions with them and possibly you know this pattern so well from them now that you could almost tell me what you expect them to do in the next interaction. Oh gosh, that is so true. I'm thinking about some difficult people in my life and the people that I've worked with. It does become so predictable. Walking into a meeting, you know what to expect walking into a new situation where there's a new leader or something, you know what they're going to do. Like you can start to see these really predictable patterns and also realizing that we can all be difficult. I can be really difficult in certain relationships. I can be difficult. Yes. Hungry, tired. All We, could, we can all be difficult, but really starting to notice these predictable patterns and how we can manage ourselves within these relationships. But before we go there, how do we know the difference between difficult and dangerous? Uh, The difference is probably criminal. It's probably their quickest way to answer that. The thing about difficult people is that the subtlety of it, and often we're looking at a violation of boundaries that are emotional, therefore subtle. Now, your physical and your sexual boundaries shouldn't have to be stated overtly, you know? Assuming we're not crossing cultures, because obviously there's personal space differences in different cultures and all that kind of stuff. There are cultures who are more affectionate than other cultures. But assuming that all things remain equal, you shouldn't necessarily have to state your physical and your sexual boundaries. So people who go and violate your physical and sexual boundaries, therefore behave criminally, especially if we're leaning towards abuse or assault, then we're definitely up the dangerous end of the spectrum. Difficult people are slide down the, uh, the continuum a little bit more closer to the middle where they're violating boundaries, but they're not necessarily doing so at a level that's dangerous. The thing is, though, it doesn't mean that it's any less uncomfortable. And one of the problems with difficult people is that often it's so subtle that it would actually be easier to describe if you had like some kind of clear violation. Oftentimes they they're able to manipulate and take advantage at such a, a minute level it's almost difficult to put words to. And that was also one of the difficult things about writing the book is that I'm like, oh, how do I describe this feeling, you know, when these people are often so smart in their ways of interacting so as to gain advantage that, um, yeah, it's, it's difficult to put, to put labels to. And that speaks to our personal experience when someone else will say, why are they difficult? And you try to articulate it, but it can be really hard to actually explain to other people how we're feeling, some subtle things that are going on, that people aren't always the same version of themselves when other people aren't there. So I can't put my finger on it, but it feels different. And how much that 
impacts our ability to do our work. So in a workplace setting, if you're avoiding meetings or avoiding things, and then we can start to get this collective sense of just leave them alone. They're just difficult. No one can touch them. And then it gets really corrosive. The difficult person is not getting pulled up because everyone's just walking on eggshells around them because it's just too hard. It's too hard. And also, we can't all collectively decide what they're doing wrong. So instead, we'll just sweep it under the carpet or they'll get promoted sideways. Or if let's say they're a parent and so there's not too much that you can do, you're in a place where we just need to let them get away with that behavior so that they don't make our lives harder. So often with difficult people, the problem is that people let their boundaries slide with these people because they don't want to escalate the situation. They don't want to be in a position where they have to interact more often with these people. It's just easier to shut up and not rock the boat. But then you're exactly right. These people just continuously get away with that behavior over and over again. So when we're thinking about behaviors, how can we categorize them? That's a really good question. I think I first want people to think about how often behaviors occur. So in the book, I actually talk about nine archetypes of difficult people. And I'm not going to recite them here because obviously there's nine of them. So let's not do that. That would take me an entire episode. But what I've tried to do is actually look at the behaviors in terms of where they stem from with difficult people. Difficult people often have really problematic childhoods through no fault of their own. They've often experienced trauma. They've often experienced grown-ups who violated the child's boundaries and therefore they've landed in adulthood not knowing what boundaries are, not knowing how to interact in healthy ways. And so what I've done is I've categorized the behaviors of difficult people according to um, the attachment style of that person and their way of coping when interpersonal interactions become stressful. Now, the reason that's relevant is because it helps the reader of the book to be able to look at gaining an understanding of where this difficult person is coming from. Now, that doesn't solve the difficult person's behavior, but it does allow you to perhaps realize that it's probably not about you. So, so often difficult people make us think like, what am I doing wrong that's creating this situation? And I'm actually betting that you're not doing anything wrong, wrong at all. This person has just learned ways of being in interpersonal relationships that are effective, even though they're uncomfortable for the other person. So we don't really need to look at a full book's worth of behaviors because instead I can get listeners to be able to just think, first of all, if we're looking, if you're thinking about this difficult person in your life right now, I want you to think about how often do you see the behavior occurring? How long does the behavior last? Is that kind of excessive compared to what you would think would be appropriate and how intense is it when it occurs? So if you see this behavior from them more often than not in times of stress or even not in times of stress, just when they want to get some kind of advantage, if you find that when it occurs goes on for longer than what's appropriate. So let's say the argument happened with them last week and they're still texting you about it like three days later. They just can't let it go. Or they bring it up the next time that you see them and it's not to repair, it's actually to continue the fight. 
then we probably have an issue. And if we're looking at intensity, difficult people often have, because of that dysregulation problem, they often have problems being able to respond in socially appropriate ways. So, you know, let's say any kind of interpersonal interaction was to turn a little sour. Most of us have the capacity to be able to navigate that without violating other people's boundaries. So that might mean that, you know, we agree that we just don't talk about it at this point until we both go and calm down and then come back to it later. Difficult people will tend to intensify it beyond what you deem appropriate. So as you're thinking about this difficult person and you're assessing their behavior, if you can kind of put your finger on it lasts a long time, it happens regularly and it's very intense, then it's very likely that we're talking about you dealing with a card carrying difficult person as opposed to someone that's just having a bad day or someone that's going through a bad chapter in life because there's that too you know like you let's say you're going through a divorce and the separation is like so incredibly stressful you've been with this person for 20 years and your heart's broken and you're just not yourself for a year after that you know that doesn't make you a difficult person it means that you're a human trying your best to cope and perhaps you know, it's actually really hard for you to have anything left over for anyone else during that time. We still need to make space for people to be human without wheeling out a label of, you know, like slapping them in the forehead with, here, you're a difficult person, right? You know, read this book. (laughs) Don't give them my book and say that I said to do that. But isn't that beautiful, that invitation to just note what's going on in this person's life? What season are they in? Do they have newborns and they're not getting sleep or have they just been put into a leadership role at the last minute or has a teacher left last term and now they've got an extra year 12 class? You know, like let's look about the wider situation. But then also when you were talking about that intensity, what came to my mind was almost like dealing with a toddler, like the emotions are so big and so intense that idea of a child in an adult's body in those moments? They really are children in adults' bodies when they've not been taught how to manage those big feelings. So it's really important, I think, for listeners to understand that the skills that we take for granted are still skills. So the skill to be able to take some deep breaths when you've got big feelings is a skill. That's not just inbuilt. We don't just we don't just come out of the womb knowing to take big deep breaths if our feelings are becoming intense in some way. We get taught that. We get taught that by adults who model how to effectively self-regulate and how to respond to interpersonal conflict, interpersonal distress, interpersonal sensitivity in some way. Now, many difficult people haven't grown up with the benefit of having grown-ups around them, adults around them that teach them those things and that make space for them to have big feelings and respect those big feelings and help them to sit through those big feelings without shaming them, humiliating them and punishing them. So many difficult people as children were punished, shamed, humiliated for having feelings in the first place, for daring to have needs, for daring to be present and taking up space. So they land in adulthood as children in adult bodies. We have expectations of them that they'll be able to function as an emotionally healthy adult, but instead we're probably dealing with someone that at best is emotionally incompetent and at worst is a full-blown difficult person with 
perhaps a lack of empathy and and possibly coping strategies that are actually very destructive in relationships. And it's beautiful how you reminded us earlier that it's not necessarily personal. We can take so much of this behaviour really personally and think that there's something wrong with me. If I did something different, they're not going to behave like this. When it sounds like in the reality, it's probably pretty predictable that they will behave like this, even if we do try to change things. Yeah, especially if you're talking about such a sensitive issue as sharing a child with that person. So let's, uh, and I mean that in a school-based sense, not in a co-parenting sense. So although it would also exist in the co-parenting sense if you've got difficulties with an ex-partner. What I'm talking about is generally parents care a lot about their kids and as they should. But some parents have gone on to have babies without realising that they have stuff and they don't take responsibility for that stuff. And so when you're sharing a child with that parent and that parent comes in for a parent-teacher interview and you want to give them some feedback on that child's progress, the parent, instead of being able to hear the feedback, perhaps gets defensive, starts to blame you, and then turns the entire situation into a war rather than a shared, a shared sense of commitment to this child's well-being and their academic growth. And that becomes incredibly difficult. So I'm not defending these people's behaviour by saying, you know, look, they've probably had a shitty background. Although that's probably the case. I'm just saying that when you can see someone in this, in that kind from that kind of lens, then it can be a little easier that after that parent teacher interview, you don't walk away thinking, I'm a crappy teacher. You're not a crappy teacher. You're certainly not if you're listening to this podcast, because that's the thing, you know, difficult people don't generally listen to podcasts like this. They don't generally walk into bookstores and buy books called difficult people. They just don't do that because often their emotional growth is quite stunted and they often don't have any insight, um, or at least if they do do have insight, they don't have much willingness to change their behavior because they're actually getting some kind of benefit out of it, or they just feel like the whole thing's too hard. Because you can imagine, like, it's hard when you're a little kid. I know when I ask my son, who's five, to take some deep breaths, sometimes if I ask in the wrong tone, he takes it, like, very offensively. (laughs) I will not take deep breaths! because I've just let his feelings go a bit too big and he's decided that my advice is crap. Like, And honestly, in that moment, it probably is, probably feels like that to him because he's not getting what he wants and he's going to be determined to continue fighting until he gets what he wants. If you think of no one around him making space for his feelings or if I turned around and said, you're being stupid and uh, you're annoying me and you can go to your room and do not come out until you're going to use nice language with a smile on your face. Now you can imagine, and that's the most mild, you know, like we're, we're probably seeing children who are physically punished for having big feelings because they don't have parents who make space for kids to not have a wired left prefrontal cortex, you know, like it takes a long time for brains to mature emotionally. You're dealing with parents who probably never had that space. And so parenting is a very triggering practice when you've got stuff that's not well managed. 
And so often we see babies having babies. Now, I'm not necessarily talking about age biologically. I'm talking about emotional age. So a 35-year-old adult can become a parent and they've never had therapy. They've never dealt with their stuff. Um, and all of a sudden you give them a baby to look after and then a toddler and then a school-aged child. And there's so much to trigger you. Like I'm a psychologist and I get triggered by my kid, right? Because I think parenting is the most triggering thing that we can do. And yet as parents, we have a responsibility to go, okay, I've been triggered. How can I manage my own stuff so that that doesn't get projected onto my kid? Now, difficult people don't do that. They don't necessarily have the growth, the emotional evolution available to be able to think that meta about their experience. And so if you're sitting in a place where you've just had a parent-teacher interview that went awry or you've just been yelled at because you've phoned about little Johnny who's had another day off and that's a bit concerning and the parents got very defensive with you, that's not about you. You know, if you if you're thinking to yourself, you know, this family will move on at the end of the year and you're devastated to think, oh, my goodness, but now there might be another difficult parent. Or perhaps you've got to work alongside a new teacher who's difficult. Then all of this can feel so personal and it can feel like you're the one that's doing something wrong. But I will put money on the fact that. Sure, you might end up in patterns with these people that are not necessarily helpful and we can definitely look at that, but it's very unlikely it's you doing something wrong consistently. It's more likely that the way these people move through the world is abrasive and you've just been on the other end of that. So how can we hold ourselves when we're dealing with difficult people in our lives because it's a part of life? We can't avoid all of them. Some we can, but some we can't. How can we best hold ourselves and move forward with these relationships? Yeah, so the first thing is to regulate. Don't continue an interaction or enter an interaction with a difficult person if you're dysregulated. Because remember, you're probably the only one out of the two of you that's going to do any kind of regulation. So if you're not feeling calm, I mean, you don't need to feel perfectly calm. But if we look at it from a scale of zero to 10, where zero is you're asleep, like we all need some kind of, we all have some kind of stress to function on a daily uh, daily basis. Most of us would function around maybe two to three. But if you're like, say, a seven or above, delay the interaction or change the format of the interaction. So perhaps a face-to-face meeting can become an email or a phone call or a phone call becomes a text, that kind of thing. So make sure that you just give yourself some time to center yourself before you have this interaction. And I really encourage you to set boundaries as much as you can. And that can include boundaries to actually reduce how much contact you have to have with this person. Because one of the, I think one of the things we need to acknowledge is that as adults, a really difficult truth, I think, is that we have the responsibility that we get to say who has access to us as other adults. So if another adult has access to you and that person is harmful to you, then you get to say that that person no longer has access to you, even if you share DNA with this person. And that can be really tough to swallow because I think we're so socially conditioned to just accept that, you know, 
families should love each other and it should all be happy, happy, joy, joy. Same with workplaces, right? The workplace, people should behave well at work in the workplace. They should. They should in families too, and they don't. And yet we uh, hope that things will change. And so when you're not seeing things change, especially over a long period of time, the next hard truth there is that if you're continuing to allow this person to have access to you but expecting a different result, then you're kind of setting yourself up for failure with this person. So you have permission to actually deny this person access to you. And then finally, I think uh, something that's really underrated is paying attention to the people around you who are good for your mental health. So we spend so much time talking about people who are, you know, shitty around us, and that's because they take up rent-free space in our head. So the problem with difficult people is not that you're spending time with, I mean, unless it's your partner, you probably don't spend a stack of time with this person just because they're difficult, but I bet they spend a lot of time in your head anyway. So you spend lots of time and energy on them even when you're not in their presence. And I want that to change. So if you've got a difficult person in your life and you can't just cut them off because let's face it, life is complex and nuanced and you can't just read a book called Difficult People by Dr. Rebecca Ray and then cut everyone off. Like I don't, I don't advise that even though in the book I do acknowledge that sometimes it's the only option for your peace. But let's say you don't want to or you can't for whatever reason. You can't just walk out and get another job and we're talking about your boss here, cost of living crisis, right? So you still have to go to work tomorrow. Or we're talking about someone from your um, family of origin and you don't want to cut them off for whatever reason. The thing to do in that space is to make sure that you are surrounded by people who are good for your mental health, who can support you, because those people take us up to the comfortable side of the interpersonal continuum of safety, where these people are actually good for your soul. And then you might be lucky enough to have one or two people who are so good for your soul as to be healing for you. And they're the ones who you can't possibly imagine living life without because they are just so incredibly good for you. Pay more attention to them, spend more time with them, seek support from them. And then for the people that you that are difficult, that you have to continue contact with in some way, just consider changing the format of the contact, contact if you can. So, you know, face-to-face goes to uh, FaceTime, FaceTime goes to an audio phone call, which turns into a text message or an email. Or if we're talking about, you know, a friendship or a family member, it might turn into a seasonal card, you know, a birthday card and a Christmas card. And that's where the relationship lies. You have control over that, but you don't necessarily have control over what the difficult person does, which is the sucky thing about the whole thing. You know, like I had in writing the book, I knew that I'd get asked, like people would, I've done 15,000 interviews already about the book and people sit down they're like they rub their hands together and like oh Rebecca I so needed this book I'm so glad that you wrote it now tell us what do we do about difficult people and my bad news is you can't do anything about them like you literally can't control other people which sucks like I really wish that I could have written a book that says he's the magic formula for changing this person's shitty behavior but I can't because we can't control others so instead what we're left with is what we can directly control. And I find that liberating because if I look back on my journey and some of the most difficult people that I've worked with or lived with, whatever situation, a lot of my attention came from wanting them to be different or saying you wouldn't believe what they've done, but the reality is 
that's what they always do. But it's like a shock every single time. They did that again. They did that again. You can't believe it because I was in this mindset of they're going to change. Of course, they're going to change. They're going to see what they're doing and how much it's impacting everybody else and they're going to change. But once I moved towards this understanding of, you know what, they're probably not going to change and the behavior is really predictable, let it be. Like not get drawn into the tension and the drama. Like I was starting to get addicted to the drama of it. Yes, and sometimes because you're predicting drama with them, you can actually create drama because you expect it to happen. And so I think that drama addiction is a really important thing to bring up because difficult people can then easily turn the blame around you and go, I didn't start it. Like I didn't, I, I didn't create this. You're the one being a problem when actually you're just expecting the dynamic to go this way. And what we see happen is this pattern of they do this and you do that. And around and around we go because brains like to do what's familiar. And so if you've been around this person for a long period of time, you can be in a position where you're actually, you've developed this dynamic together and it keeps repeating itself. And the only thing that you can control there to actually change the dynamic between the two of you is what you bring to that pattern. So once you stop participating in the cycle, then all of a sudden they have to change because you've changed. So um, they might try to repeat what you've always done with them. But if you're being different, the, the outcome of the interaction has to be different. Yes. And that's another thing that I absolutely love in the book is there are so many scripts because we get to these positions we're like, what do I say in this interaction? And you've got a script for all of these different behaviors and it gives us something to hold on to and to practice in the times where we're feeling overwhelmed. I'm not sure what to say, but we can look at these words and think, okay, there is a way forward. There are things that I can say, ways that I can assert my needs and move forward bravely. The entire middle of the book is filled with a million different behaviours and scripts for them. But what I wanted people to really take away from those scripts is not necessarily having to memorise the script and repeat it back like they're an Android, but more being able to understand what the language might sound like so that you can then adapt it to your own language and how it might sound for you. Because some people just freeze, um, you know, as part of the fight-flight response. If you're confronted with a difficult person, you can expect that your survival instincts might kick in. You know, you might avoid and run the other way. You might escalate and be ready for a fight, or you just might shut down altogether and feel like your mind goes blank and you don't know what to say. So I really wanted to fill in that blank for people. Like if you find that your pattern is to not know what to say or to forget what you're going to say or just avoid the conversation altogether, then here's some words that might actually help you start the conversation or to be able to respond differently. Or, of course, not to fall back on people-pleasing like um, many people always do. And there's multiple sections in the book about people-pleasing and how we use that to cope. Yes, that is such a common coping mechanism. Beck, thank you for diving into this topic and doing all of the brain gymnastics to try and make this make sense because it's so helpful to have something that articulates such subtle behaviours and it helps us to be seen and heard and it really gives us this next level of confidence to be like, yes, we have difficult people, but as you say, they don't need to be rent-free in our house, like in our mind. They don't need to run our minds. 
yes, there's difficult people in the world and I continue to move on. I don't need to give it all the oxygen, that old saying of, you know, the squeaky wheel gets the oil or whatever it is. We don't need to assign ourselves to that. So thank you so much. To wrap up this conversation, I'd love to invite you to finish four sentences. Are you up for that? Yes. I am inspired by. Uh, You know what I'm inspired by? The time-space continuum that they've just discovered. So they've just discovered that um, in every atom, in every cell in our body, holds the vibration of everything that's ever existed in the universe. I'm just so in awe of that. When life feels hard? When life feels hard, go gently, especially if your automatic reaction is to criticize or condemn or punish yourself. Practice consciously going gently instead. An underrated skill is? Saying sorry. And I'm looking forward to? I'm looking forward to the practice of cultivating my inner peace at the moment. And I am so looking forward to hosting the masterclass with you in a few weeks because I think there is so much magic in you and I coming together to share a masterclass about all the myths that keep educators stuck and to have an open conversation because you and I are constantly sharing content to help people. And this is an opportunity to be a community and to be in community, having these conversations, understanding so much of what holds us back. It's human. It's not personal. And as we understand it and we can support each other, there is so much available to us. And especially when we're talking about educators, but I actually think it's a lifelong path, really. It's a calling. People who are called to be educators and to work in education do work that is irreplaceable and that is so often undervalued. So I'm excited to contribute my little piece to help people doing the work that is so incredibly magical. Beck, thank you for being a guest on the School of Wellbeing podcast and we look forward to seeing you at the Masterclass soon. Thanks so much, Meg. What a powerful conversation. We can all think of one difficult person in our lives and what would be possible if we learn how to navigate ourselves and them in more healthier and productive ways. Just think of how much energy and headspace we can save. Beck's book, Difficult People, Dealing with the Bad Behaviour of Difficult People is now available online and in store. If you enjoyed hearing Beck and I chat today, you will love our new online masterclass, Four Myths Keeping Educators Stuck. In this live and interactive session, Beck and I will guide you on a journey of self-discovery where you learn valuable techniques to recharge your battery, find balance and reignite the fire within. The session will be Thursday the 17th of August and if you aren't able to join us live, don't worry. You'll have access to the recording so you can watch the replay in your own time. It's going to be an incredible session and I look forward to seeing you there. You can find all the information in the show notes or visit www.rebeccaray.com.au forward slash for miss. To learn more about Beck and the wonderful work she does in the world, see the show notes for more details. If you found this episode helpful, please share it with anyone you know that would benefit from listening or reach out to me on Instagram or LinkedIn and let me know what resonated most with you. To learn more about the ways that I can help you and your school community thrive, 
visit my website, openmindeducation.com. There you can book me to speak, learn about my game-changing wellbeing programs, or download my free five-step energy guide. You can find all the links from today's episode at openmindeducation.com forward slash podcast 92. Thank you for listening to this episode of the School of Wellbeing, and I look forward to sharing more heartfelt conversations with you next week. Until then, take care and take deliberate action.